This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no disbelief, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 406. Do you remember Lemuria? The concept of an Earth that is hollow and possibly habitable and inhabited has a long history. And while for a lot of what we're going to talk about today, the saucers are peripheral and of questionable spaciness, what I hope you'll find is that elements of the saucer life are deeply embedded in a context of some decidedly non-saucer-based beliefs and stories. We're going to begin with John Cleves Sims. Sims was born in Sussex County, New Jersey in 1780 and joined the U.S. Army in 1802. He served in a number of posts on the Western Frontier, and by Western Frontier in 1802, we're basically talking Ohio, and eventually served as an infantry captain in the War of 1812. After the war, Sims left the Army and settled in St. Louis. On April 10, 1818, Sims published a circular and began distributing it. Thankfully, it was later reprinted, and in 1861, appeared in a book called Pioneer Biography, Sketches of the Lives of Some of the Early Settlers of Butler County, Ohio, which is where Sims ended up. Here's what the circular said. I declare the earth is hollow and habitable within, containing a number of solid concentric spheres, one within the other, and that it is open at the poles 12 or 16 degrees. I pledge my life in support of this truth and am ready to explore if the world will support and aid me in this undertaking. In his circular, Sims issued a call for volunteers. I ask for 100 brave companions well-equipped to start from Siberia in the fall season with reindeer and sleighs on the ice of the frozen sea. I engage we find warm and rich land stocked with thrifty vegetables and animals, if not men, on reaching one degree northward of latitude 82. We will return in the succeeding spring. In 1820, Sims followed up his circular with a fictional treatment of all of this called Simsonia. Yes, he named the inner earth after himself. Simsonia, a voyage of discovery, and he was writing as Captain Adam Seaborn, a fictional character. Seaborn follows Sims's plan and sails through the opening at the North Pole. Now, the notion of openings in the poles goes all the way back to the great-grandfather of the hollow earth, Edmund Halley, the comic guy. But Sims sort of expands on it, because inside the Earth, Seaborn encounters a comfortable, pleasant interior world. Remember that. It's going to become important. And Seaborn has an inflated view of the value of his discovery. Whose achievements equaled mine? The voyage of Columbus was but an excursion on a fish pond, and his discoveries compared with mine were but trifles. Actually, let's be honest, if this guy had discovered an entire realm inside the Earth, yeah, that kind of would sort of outpace Columbus, really, who just discovered something that a lot of people actually knew about, who lived in North America, plus Vikings. Anyway, Seaborn, the character, also reveals that the humans of the exterior world were the descendants of those who had committed crimes and been exiled from the paradise of this subterranean realm. Now, Sims's theories about the hollow earth and his desire to mount an expedition to explore it may look strange from our 21st century perspective. He actually asked Congress for money to do this, and Congress was actually pretty keen on it. To an observer in the 1820s or 30s, though, 
it would have looked at most merely too ambitious and expensive. The stories of explorers such as Lewis and Clark and Zebulon Pike and Stephen Long were fresh in the American mind. Exploration, expansion, and the discovery of, of two Americans, new and different things, be they lands, ideas, literature, or technology, were part and parcel of the 19th century American experience. So Sims wasn't completely out of place in 19th century America. He fancied himself as an explorer and a pioneer, and a lot of people did that. Sims was just pointed in a weird direction. So after Sims and his adherents passed from the scene by the mid-19th century, stories of the Hollow Earth were more limited to the fictional realms, such as Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. Non-fictional treatments of the notion no longer made that many appearances in scientific lectures. Rather, non-fictional accounts of the Hollow Earth appeared in spiritualist texts, which discussed the ascended masters and the lost continents of Mu and Lemuria and Atlantis. Travels to the interior of the Earth would persist in novels like John Yuri Lloyd's 1898 novel, Edidorfa, and Willis George Emerson's 1908 novel, The Smoky God. In the 1940s, however, the hollow Earth would reemerge, and it would blur the lines between fiction and, I don't want to say fact, but fiction and made-up story presented as fact, I guess. And it all goes back to a guy named Richard Shaver. Richard Sharp Shaver, his real name, was born in Pennsylvania in 1907, and in the 1930s, after moving to Michigan, he got a job at the Ford Auto Body Plant in Highland Park, Michigan, outside Detroit, and held this job for several years. He was plagued by disembodied voices in his head, and Shaver spent time in Michigan's Ypsilanti State Hospital and also in the Ionia State Hospital from the late 1930s into the 1940s. And while he was there, he began to develop theories about the cause of the voices in his head or their source. He began to believe they emanated from beings below the surface of the earth, using devices to beam the voices into his mind. Shaver determined that there were different types of beams or rays the beings used. There were stim rays, pain rays, crueling rays, police rays, medical rays, and so on. Shaver came to believe that he alone held the key to a vast secret few others knew. During his time at the Ionia State Hospital, Shaver began to write extensively about the subterranean mind controllers who were affecting him. Shaver's public revelations of the mysteries of the Hollow Earth began in 1943 after his release from Ionia. He wrote a very strange letter to editor Ray Palmer at Amazing Stories magazine, which published science fiction. After some debate within the editorial offices of Amazing Stories, Palmer ran Shaver's letter in the January 1944 issue. Sirs, am sending you this in hopes you will insert in an issue to keep it from dying with me. It would arouse a lot of discussion. I'm sending you the language so that sometime you can have it looked at by someone in the college or a friend who is a student of antique time. This language seems to me to be definite proof of the Atlantean legend. It is an immensely important find, suggesting the god legends have a base in some wiser race than modern man. It should be saved and placed in wise hands. I can't. Will you? It really has an immense significance and will perhaps put me right in your thoughts again if you will really understand this. I need a little encouragement. So as for this language, which was dubbed Mantong, Shaver included examples of how letters of the alphabet corresponded to ancient ideas. Um, it's really confusing to read, and I don't think it translates well to audio at all. 
And despite the fact that Ray Palmer's editorial response claimed that he had, quote, applied the letter meanings to the individual letters of many old root words and proper names and gotten amazing sense out of them, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, except to note two examples. The first is the letter D, or de, meaning detrimental or rather disintegrate energy, end quote. The second is the letter T, or te, quote, the real origin of the cross symbol. It meant integration force of growth, end quote. Palmer, who we really should acknowledge had a good nose for making money off this sort of thing, encouraged Shaver to produce more material like this, and Shaver submitted a 10,000-word submission titled A Warning to Future Man. Palmer rewrote it, allegedly based on, quote, more than one million words of further correspondence with Mr. Shaver, end quote, and published it in the March 1945 issue of Amazing Stories as I Remember Lemuria. Shaver insisted that he directly received his knowledge of the hollow earth from transmissions emanating from the machines below the surface, but Palmer didn't include this information in the story. Rather, Palmer told readers that Shaver's story was rooted in racial memory, which he described as, quote, the feeling that this place is familiar, yet I have never been here before, or I know a thing is so, yet I have never learned it, end quote. Shaver, in his introduction to the story, insists that, insists, rather, that it's a true story. Shaver presented a history of the earth that was far different from the accepted narrative. Basically, before Noah's flood from the Hebrew Bible, there were three advanced civilizations on earth, the Atlans, the Titans, and the Nortans. They all came originally from deep space, settling on Earth, and things were great until radiation from the sun made the surface uninhabitable. They went underground, but eventually back into space, but some stayed behind. Some of these went back to the surface and evolved into humans. Others who remained underground divided into two groups. One were the Taros, good, kind, and helpful beings. Remember the te symbol is of integration in Shaver's alphabet. The bad guys were the Deros, a term that was an abbreviation of detrimental energy robots. They torture, they kill, they're not good guys, which should be obvious since the term starts with de. Yeah, that's a bad word or a bad phoneme, I guess. When I Remember Lemuria appeared, there was quite a response from readers. Ray Palmer, knowing a good thing when he saw it, encouraged more material from Shaver and contributed significantly to it himself. In the next issue of Amazing Stories, Palmer retracted his explanation of racial memory and acknowledged that the story was not a racial memory, but a thought record. That is to say, something directly experienced by Shaver in a strange way, sort of a previous life sort of thing, rather than by a distant ancestor. Palmer also revealed that I Remember Lemuria was a blend of fact and fiction. Palmer claimed that he had received letters from readers which revealed that, among other things, quote, mankind does know about the Dero people living now in the caves and is tormented by them, end quote. Shaver contributed a new story called Thought Records of Lemuria, in which he recounted hearing voices in his head while working on the automotive line and his subsequent contacts with the Dero dwelling below the surface. The June 1946 issue of Amazing Stories featured a letter from an anonymous former army captain that not only heightened the mystique around the Shaver mystery, but would become part of the wider flying saucer and paranormal lore. Sirs, I flew my last combat mission on May 26th when I was shot up over Bassane and 
ditched my ship in Remory Roads off Chaduba Island. I was missing five days. I requested leave at Kashmir. I and Captain left Sringar and went to Rudok, then through the Kesa Pass to the northern foothills of the Cabacorum. We found what we were looking for. We knew what we were searching for. For heaven's sake, drop out of the whole thing. You're playing with dynamite. My companion and I fought our way out of a cave with submachine guns. I have two nine-inch scars on my left arm that came from wounds given me in a cave when I was fifty feet from a moving object of any kind and in perfect silence. The muscles were nearly ripped out. How? I don't know. My friend had a hole the size of a dime in his right bicep. It was seared inside. How? We don't know. But we both believe we know more about the Shaver mystery than any other pair. You can imagine my fright when I picked up my first copy of Amazing Stories and see you smashing words about the subject. Don't print our names. We're not cowards, but we're not crazy. You've given a lot of information in Amazing Stories that seems entirely unrelated to our subject. But a lot of it is. That's what worries us. Later, Palmer would reveal the name of the letter writer as Fred Chrisman. Chrisman would also show up in Washington State, connected to the Maury Island flying saucer crash incident in 1947, which involved one of the earliest men in black encounters. Chrisman has also been connected to the Kennedy assassination, and at one point claimed that the classic television show The Invaders was based on his life. We will need to do a deep dive into Fred Chrisman at some point, but for the moment, if we're looking at parallels and connections to the flying saucer world, the letter writer here does something that would become common in the saucer world, verifying someone's outlandish story while at the same time making it clear that they experienced it first. We saw this with the contactees, for example. Shaver's vision of the subterranean world was a land that had fallen into chaos and disorder, rather than a perceived paradise as we saw with Sims's tale of the hollow earth. Further, under the guidance of Ray Palmer, Shaver's tales of the Darrows and Taros became a record of an era of hidden truth, almost an ancient sort of mythological story. The popularity of Shaver's stories spread, and one example of the degree to which, let's say, allied fields of study felt about these things is the response of these mysteries by the Borderland Sciences Research Associates, a group we met back in Encounter 301. Mead Lane's first assessment of the Shaver phenomenon was not entirely positive. A note here, scientificition, let me say that again, scientificition was an early term that never took off for what we call science fiction. Scientificion. Scientificion. I think I can say that right. Scientificion. The fact that this whole stir-about originated with a scientifiction publication, which continues to commercialize it with no unskilled hand, gives it a black eye from the start. Fact, fiction, and dream are inextricably mingled, and it's safe to say that no scientific society or periodical will give the matter any attention whatever as it stands now. The disturbing feature of this business is not the shaver fiction, but the correspondence it's evoked, the intense sincerity of many of the writers, and the constant repetition of certain elements. We mean, for example, that if a score or a hundred people assert that they have seen, in dream or vision, an identical but unknown gadget, or building, or landscape, or anything else of new and distinctive appearance, it's something to think about. Especially if you accept, as all informed people now do, 
the existence of extrasensory or extended sensory perception and of extrasensory existence. These visual appearances, dreams and voices, all smack to us of lower astral contacts, clairaudience and clairvoyance. We wait with interest the appearance of the first bit of objective evidence, a Dero-inhabited cavern, a buried plate or significant inscription. We want to know if Mr. Shaver's own account of his imprisonment and escape has been verified. We want a voice-making or ray-casting machine actually seen by dependable witnesses. We suggest that one real danger is some of our professional and official brothers. We mean doctors, lawyers, psychologists, psychiatrists, alienists, psychoanalysts, all kith and kin of them, will get their claws on these clairaudient folk, shut them all up as filberts of a most dangerous variety. They have actually been doing that for years past. We don't know a single one of these gentry to whom we would dare say that we hear voices if we did. And yet clairaudience is widespread, as old as the race and a godlike faculty which we have prostituted or denied. At the same time, we're not going to deny the Deros or some unspeakable equivalence of them. We really think, for a book full of reasons that can't be summarized, that some devilment is brewing, though we're not quite sure whether it's Dero's doing, or a tidal wave, or a wave of book agents. And the more alarmed we are, the more flippant our language. The most amazing thing of all to us is that there actually are people who believe we live in a sane, orderly, rational, and predictable world. In a later issue of The Round Robin, the Borderland Science Research Associates newsletter, Lane returned to the subject, expressing further concern about the growing popularity of the Shaver stories. Since it was written, the whole affair has gained momentum. It would take a whole issue of the Round Robin to give a synopsis of it. We understand that it is being exploited, not only by Amazing Stories magazine, but by other persons also. Some of the publicity is legitimate, but from our present knowledge it is probably undesirable and even dangerous. We say this with all possible seriousness and emphasis. Let the Deros alone. Above all, do not try and reproduce any type of apparatus or machine. Palmer responded to Lane and other spiritualist-oriented critics in his June 1946 issue of Amazing Stories, criticizing this fearful attitude and denigrating the channeled messages that Lane and his associates received and studied as being less valuable and true than Shaver's alleged memories. Eventually, Ziff Davis, the publisher of Amazing Stories, ordered Palmer to make it clear that the Shaver mystery, as it was now known, was fiction. Palmer did so, little by little, until in 1948, the topic all but faded from the pages of Amazing Stories, and Palmer, by that time, had begun to shift his workload to the establishment of a new magazine, Fate, which allowed him the freedom to indulge in occult topics like hidden civilizations and his new topic of special interest, Flying Saucers, without even the pretense that it was supposed to be fiction. While some of Shaver's stories had the Dero piloting spacecraft, and this has led many to paint the Shaver mystery as the forebearer of the Flying Saucer craze, let's face it, Ray Palmer's extensive Flying Saucer publishing empire and his relationship with Shaver cemented the hollow-earth-saucer connection as firmly as anything else. The direct connections are a little tenuous. However, I think it's interesting to look at the thematic connections between them rather than scrutinizing illustrations of Darrow rocket ships and comparing them to flying saucer sighting reports. The degree to which Palmer accepted Shaver's ideas has always been unclear, but both of them conveyed the sense that the scientific and educational establishment was not the be-all and end-all of knowledge. The assertion 
that a hidden elite, scientific, political, or financial, was controlling secret technology to solidify and maintain their dominance is a common conspiratorial trope, and it's strongly present in a lot of flying saucer-oriented conspiracy theories. Shaver's assertion was that human science was inferior to that of the residents of the Hollow Earth, and that's a good parallel to flying saucer beliefs or theories. Substitute outer space for inner Earth, and a lot of it works, especially when you consider the Daros as evil aliens with their death rays, and various other kind of rays. In the late 1950s, another iteration of the Hollow Earth mythos emerged, and it centered around the figure of the, at that point, just a barely deceased Rear Admiral Richard E. Byrd. Byrd was a national hero, an explorer of the North and South Pole, and recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was an all-around cool guy. In a 1958 book called Worlds Beyond the Poles, an Italian writer named F. Amadeo Giannini argued that Byrd had taken a seven-hour flight over, quote, the land beyond the North Pole. Now, that's where the claim was left until the 1970s, I think, late 70s, I think, when an organization called the Society for a Complete Earth claimed that they had a secret diary that Byrd had kept of a 1947 flight to the North Pole. Now, there was a hidden Rear Admiral Richard E. Byrd diary, but it was from his 1926 flight to the North Pole, which may not have happened. It's the subject of some controversy. But this diary that supposedly was from February of 1947 had some pretty interesting stuff in it. Let's take a look. Oh, nine, ten hours. Vast ice and snow below, note coloration of yellowish nature, and disperse in the linear pattern. Altering course for a better examination of this color pattern below. Note reddish or purple color also. Circle this area two full turns and return to assigned compass heading. Position check made again to base camp and relay information concerning colorations in the ice and snow below. At 0915 hours, Bird's navigational instruments went nuts and he was unable to hold a course. The controls began to grow unresponsive. Within minutes, Bird and his crew saw mountains, and continuing to fly north toward the pole, saw green grass. Not something they expected. 10.05 hours. I alter altitude to 1,400 feet and execute a sharp left turn to better examine the valley below. It is green with either moss or a type of tight-knit grass. The light here seems different. I cannot see the sun anymore. We make another left turn, and we spot what seems to be a large animal of some kind below us. It appears to be an elephant. No! It looks more like a mammoth. This is incredible. Yet, there it is. Decrease altitude to 1,000 feet and take binoculars to better examine the animal. It is confirmed. It is definitely a mammoth-type animal. Report this to base camp. The aircraft's instrumentation and handling improved, as Bird noted that the temperature was 74 degrees Fahrenheit as if the strange climate and the presence of a mammoth weren't alarming enough. At 11.30 hours, things took an even weirder turn. Countryside below was more level and normal, if I may use that word. Ahead, we spot what seems to be a city. This is impossible. Aircraft seems light and oddly buoyant. The controls refuse to respond, my God. Off our port and starboard wings are a strange type of aircraft. They're closing rapidly alongside. They're disc-shaped and have a radiant quality to them. 
They are close enough now to see the markings on them. It's a type of swastika. This is fantastic. Where are we? What has happened? I tug at the controls again. They will not respond. We are caught in an invisible vice grip of some type. As the craft is held by the unseen force, a voice with a, quote, Germanic, end quote, accent comes over the radio, which makes sense given the swastika. Welcome, Admiral, to our domain. We shall land you in exactly seven minutes. Relax, Admiral. You're in good hands. The plane, under the control of the creepy inner-earth Germans, is brought to land. Bird notes that a group of tall, blonde men are approaching the aircraft, and there's a glimmering rainbow city in the distance. Bird's taken to the Rainbow City and told he is going to meet a figure called the Master. Bird has been chosen for this meeting because of his reputation and renown on, quote, the surface world. The Master speaks. You are in the domain of the Ariani, the inner world of the Earth. Our interest rightly begins just after your race exploded the first atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. It was at that alarming time we sent our flying machines the Flugelrads, to your surface world to investigate what your race had done. That is, of course, past history now, my dear Admiral, but I must continue on. You see, we have never interfered before in your race's wars and barbarity, but now we must. For you have learned to tamper with a certain power that is not for man, namely that of atomic energy. Our emissaries have already delivered messages to the powers of your world, and yet they do not heed. Now you have been chosen to be witness here that our world does exist. You see, our culture and science is many thousands of years beyond your race, Admiral. Your race has reached the point of no return, for there are those among you who would destroy your very world rather than relinquish their power as they know it. In 1945 and afterward, we tried to contact your race, but our efforts were met with hostility. Our flugelrads were fired upon. Yes, even pursued with malice and animosity by your fighter planes. So now I say to you, my son, there is a great storm gathering in your world, a black fury that will not spend itself for many years. There will be no answer in your arms, there will be no safety in your science. It may rage on until every flower of your culture is trampled and all human beings are leveled in vast chaos. Your recent war was only a prelude of what is yet to come for your race. We here see it more clearly with each hour. We see at a great distance a new world stirring from the ruins of your race, seeking its lost and legendary treasures, and they will be here, my son, safe in our keeping. When that time arrives, we shall come forward again to help revive your culture and your race. Perhaps by then you will have learned the futility of war and its strife, and after that time certain of your culture and science will be returned to your race to begin anew. You, my son, are to return to the surface world with this message. Bird did indeed return, and his alleged secret diary records that he followed the master's instructions. March 11th, 1947. I've just attended a staff meeting at the Pentagon. I've stated fully my discovery and the message from the master. All is duly recorded. The president has been advised I am now detained for several hours, six hours, 39 minutes to be exact. I'm interviewed intently by top security forces and a medical team. It was an ordeal. I'm placed under strict control via the national security provisions of the United States of America. I am ordered to remain silent in regard to all that I have learned on the behalf of humanity. Incredible. I'm reminded that I'm a military man, and I must obey orders. 
If you've been paying attention, you can probably see some similarities not only to earlier tales of the Hollow Earth, such as Simzonia's green, pleasant, temperate interior and advanced species, but you'll also see some parallels to some of the flying saucer stories we've seen in previous encounters. There are clear, obvious connections to the contactee stories, particularly Adamski's visit to the Space Brothers on their own turf and his meeting with a figure known as the Master, which we saw in his second book, Inside the Spaceships. The notion of a cover-up and that Byrd was forbidden to discuss his message due to being under military discipline and orders reminds me of Al Bender being forbidden to discuss his knowledge of saucer truth, quote, on his honor as an American citizen. Now, there are some problems with this whole secret diary thing, besides the entire hole in the pole leading to an advanced Germanic-slash-Nazi-but-not-Nazi-accented civilization, the name of which sounds remarkably like the word Aryan. Aside from that, there are problems. The biggest issue is that in February 1947, Admiral Byrd was commanding Operation High Jump, an expedition to examine the viability of establishing a military presence in the Arctic, only it was the Antarctic, wrong side of the planet. Now, Operation High Jump is connected with a number of other conspiracy theories that I'm sure we'll be covering in long form down the road. But for the time being, he's on the wrong side of the globe. Another issue is the provenance, and honestly, the bigger issue is the provenance of the diary. In 1996, Dennis Crenshaw, editor of the Hollow Earth Insider, which is the best name for a Hollow Earth fanzine ever, accused the Society for a Complete Earth uh, and its leader, Tawani Wakaka Shush, of creating the diary as a scam. So it's it's a convincing accusation. And Crenshaw, he's a Hollow Earth fan. He's a Hollow Earth, like, I'm not going to say Hollow Earth believer necessarily, but he's extremely sympathetic and has done a lot of research on this, and it's a compelling accusation. There's a link to the complete article in the show notes. So the diary is suspect. I I think the fact that it doesn't emerge until the 70s is suspect. I think the fact that it clearly apes, I was going to say contactee stories, but it clearly apes George Adamski's second book, I think that all makes it suspect. But to get back to that suspect diary, Bird, or an author we might call Pseudo-Bird, took up the diary again in supposedly December 1956, a few months before his March 1957 death. And in a statement dated December 30th, 1956, Bird sort of sums up the entire affair just before he dies very conveniently. These last few years elapsed since 1947 have not been kind. I now make my final entry in this singular diary. In closing, I must state that I have faithfully kept this matter secret as directed all these years. It has been completely against my values of moral right. Now I seem to sense the long night coming on and this secret will not die with me, but as all truth shall, it will triumph. This can be the only hope for mankind. I have seen the truth, and it has quickened my spirit and has set me free. I have done my duty toward the monstrous military-industrial complex. Now the long night begins to approach, but there shall be no end. Just as the long night of the Arctic ends, the brilliant sunshine of truth shall come again, 
and those who are of darkness shall fall in its light. For I have seen that land beyond the pole, that center of the great unknown. Now, this is something I haven't done much research on, but it's on my list of things to look into. What I want to know is, how widespread was the use of the phrase military-industrial complex in December of 1956? Because, and I acknowledge I am pulling from my standard non-conspiratorial historian background here, Eisenhower mentions that phrase or a variation on that phrase in his last big public address as president in early 1961. But the phrase itself, military-industrial complex, I don't think you see that running around much in the mid-1950s. In the late 1970s, oh, heck yeah, it's all over the place. So if we're looking for reasons to doubt the veracity of the secret diary, the the phrase military-industrial complex is one of those. So hollower theories would continue to abound and would continue to have strong correlations to flying saucer tails and the various paranormal ephemera around flying saucer tails. One last person to look at, a writer named Wendy Lockwood, Ph.D., argues that the culture of the inner earth is the source of all religious belief systems. Her theories, theories might be actually a a stretch to call them theories, actually, about the inner earth, utilize terms and ideas from other earlier traditions. So inner writings, which are linked on the uh, website in the show notes, we see terms like Shambhala and the Great White Brotherhood. And this is already going to be one of our longer episodes. So I feel comfortable sharing a bit of Lockwood's ideas with you because, you know, in with a penny, in for a pound, right? We're already here. Like I said, links to her writings are in the show notes for your further edification and delight. All the seven secret cities lead to Eden through very ancient tunnels encircling the earth. Vast highways separated dimensionally from the world's negative populations. In paradise, I have walked among fields of translucent, opalescent flowers that grow up to ten feet tall with enormous satin petals resembling exquisite umbrellas. In paradise within are mountains, rolling hills, thick forests, velvet meadows, rivers, streams, and many lakes. I've seen apple trees with fruit 36 to 40 inches in diameter. Because our sun casts off deadly radioactive ions, they gather around and flow into the earth to the inner sun. However, through the magnetic currents that pass from the south pole to the north pole, the deadly ions are expelled, leaving only the life-giving rays. The ancients called that inner sun the bottomless pit, or the abyss, because it also is hollow and not empty. During the First Age, over ten million years ago, the Great Masters imprisoned an extremely evil, immortal race of invaders from Planet X. Their favorite food was human flesh. The old fairy tales of the Fee-Fi-Fo-Fum giants are based upon these enormous giants who nearly wiped out humankind before the Great Masters came to Earth to imprison them in the central sun. On May 1st and Halloween, certain dimensional conjunctions occur which weaken and permit them to project their extreme darkness into the world. For seven days before and after, 
those two dates, they can manipulate man's weaknesses. During those time spaces, more people become possessed, insane, and commit crimes than any other time of the year. Now, perhaps, you understand the emergency cry, Mayday! Mayday! Um, I can't even, as apparently the young people say. Lockwood also connects all of this to a vaguely Christian-sounding imagery as, as well as some great American patriotism. Those who dwell within northern Shambhala are giants in stature, averaging 12 to 15 feet tall. They are endowed with mighty god powers, and after the great earth changes in Armageddon, they will march forth as the warriors of the dawn of light against darkness. They will emerge with the rider on the white horse or the king of the world to separate the negative alien types, including the Antichrist, and imprison them in the walls of the cosmos. America is the true holy land. It is here that the world teacher will first come forth to the public after the Antichrist comes forth first. By Eastern prophecy, America was the original holy land, the first province of Atlantis to establish a cosmic school to, to teach enlightenment. The original name of America from the archives of Shambhala was Galilee. Lake Superior was called the Sea of Galilee. The Israeli Holy Land is the namesake of this more ancient land of caves. Both America and Israel are cavernous nations. Jerusalem is built upon level after level of man-made caves descending deep into the nether regions of the earth. Unsacred places, I might add. Um... I'm not sure exactly what to do with this. Actually, if I knew more about the cosmological ideas of the Latter-day Saints Church, for example, I might be able to expound a bit more, but I don't feel entirely qualified to do that. So I'll just say, hmm, interesting if true, I guess. There are other directions in which the theme of things beneath the earth would go. Is the earth hollow? If it is, is that hell? Are the Deros demons? There are some who think so, fitting the idea of the hollow earth into the long history of trying to align the world of the paranormal with Christian orthodoxy. Wendy Lockwood, as we see, fits into that realm to a degree. Stories of vast underground bases in the American West crewed by malevolent aliens is a particularly technological slant on the hollow earth or inner earth mythos, and we'll be exploring that idea in particular in coming episodes and we'll find that the saucer life looks down as well as up. Next time, we start our fifth series of half-dozen episodes with the theme, The 90s Strike Back. Winning our poll to start the series was Bill Cooper, with more votes than the other three choices combined, so we're going to start with him. You can follow along with us at saucerlife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the caves, because the people in the caves are watching you.